We, the jury, in the above entitled matter, as to count one, unintentional second-degree murder while committing a felony, find the defendant guilty. So thankful to God, because only a God could do something like this in America. Same caption, verdict count two. We, the jury, in the above entitled matter, as to count two, third-degree murder, perpetrating an eminently dangerous act, find the defendant guilty. While many of us breathe a sigh of relief, George Floyd and countless others are still dead. Here's the truth about racial injustice. It is not just a black America problem. Systemic racism is a stain on our nation's soul. The knee on the neck of justice for black America. Same caption, verdict count three. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count three. Secondary manslaughter, culpable negligence, creating an unreasonable risk. Find the defendant guilty. We're praying that from this moment, um, this is a crying call to our nation that we will not continue as we've operated in the past. I'm hoping that, you know, the message is clear that, you know, it, it's a dangerous job. It's a job where it's not always pretty. But I think if you act in the conformance of the laws and your training and your police policies, you'll be fine. The fact that the whole country or the people who saw this as a problem um, brought it to the light, I think this is just a testimony to the work that we as the people can do. The power lies in the hands of the people. I am Crystal Haynes. Um, you know, you know what we do here. Common Narrative explores the media's effect on public perception across all lines of diversity. And of course, we all felt what happened on April 20th, 2021. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin was found guilty of second degree murder and second degree murder in the murder of George Floyd. And as the nation takes a collective exhale, the conversation around policing in America continues on the very next breath. We unpack this topic with Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Monica Cannon Grant of Violence in Boston, State Representative Russell Holmes, and WGBH reporter Saray Wintersmith. But I wanted to start with the lady you see right here on your screen, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley of the Massachusetts Seven, thank you so much for taking some time for us. Great to be with you and congratulations. Um, and so appreciate uh, this, the responsible way with which you're stewarding this platform and, um, and, and thrilled to, to be here. I know we won't be on at the same time as my uh, siblings in movement building and justice seeking. So I wanna ask um, Congresswoman, uh, where were you when you heard about the verdict and what were the, the emotions that were, were coming up for you? Well, first, let me just say that none of us knew that the jury would reach a verdict so early. Um, had I known that, perhaps I would have um, prayed a different prayer that morning. Maybe my meditation, my journaling would have been something different. So it was completely a surprise that the verdict was coming out so early. I was with my colleagues in the Congressional Black Caucus um, we had come together uh, in a space just with one another so that we could see the verdict in real time together. Um, and then from there, we went out uh, for a, a press conference in response to the verdict. Um, what I did immediately upon uh, hearing that guilty, guilty, guilty was embrace uh, one of my siblings in the movement who was a critical architect 
of this movement on the ground in the streets of Ferguson. And that is my uh, colleague and sister in service, Corey Bush. So we sort of, uh, uh, out of St. Louis, we fell into each other's uh, arms. And I think for a moment, I gave myself permission to exhale. But the more time elapsed from that moment, um, the more unsettled I became. I wish that I woke up the next morning, Crystal, and I could have lit a candle and played Nina Simone and felt safer as a black woman and worried less and feared less for my black, my black daughter and my black husband, but I did not because that was a verdict of accountability, not justice. Justice would mean that George Floyd and the countless others, both in our commonwealth and throughout our nation who have been surveyed, lynched, brutalized, murdered, they would still be here. So what we saw was accountability in one verdict, but now we must do the work uh, as close as we can get to justice. Again, justice would mean that all of these victims would still be here, but uh, that's the work that lies ahead of us is system change. We're seeing a culture shift, but now we need to see a policy shift. And that to me includes legislation like my bill to end qualified immunity. Otherwise there's no deterrent for this systemic pervasive brutality against black Americans. If law enforcement can operate with callous disregard for black and brown bodies with reckless impunity without any consequences. I wanna also point folks to uh, a piece you wrote in USA Today. You said the truth is that we never expected justice in this trial. The American criminal legal system remains deeply broken and could never deliver the justice for George Floyd and his family. True justice would be George Floyd alive today at home with his fiance, children and siblings. I want you to say, say more about that and, and, and what you mean there. Well, look, we have legislated intersectional systemic oppression of black Americans, not naturally occurring, legislated. And it has everything to do with underinvestment, divestment. I represent the Massachusetts 7th, a district that's 53% people of color, the most unequal congressional district in this delegation, which has been the hardest hit by the pandemic and one of the most unequal in our nation, one of the most undercounted, uh, under-resourced federally, divested from. So Crystal, we have to make investment in community, investment in people, that they have a ecosystem whereby they are not just fighting for mere survivability, but can thrive. Instead, we have communities whereby people are forced to do things to survive, and then that behavior is criminalized resulting in mass incarceration, which is why I'm so grateful um, for my siblings in the movement that are a part of your show today, but also our Suffolk County DA. Um, she was a, a co-architect of my People's Justice Guarantee, which seeks to um, decriminalize those low-level offenses, uh, to decriminalize poverty, substance use, mental health, homelessness. You know, Black folks are criminalized for our skin color, we're criminalized for being alive. And, and so first things first is making the investment in communities um, and in people to support us, not merely surviving, but thriving. 
And that what does that mean, Crystal? That means instead of investing $1 billion over the last two decades to grow our school police to 46,000 strong, when every student does not have equitable access to a school nurse, social worker, or guidance counselor, when that is proven to support our children in their wellness, but also in their readiness to learn, right? That means that the first responder may have a role in society, but they need and play a role in every part of society. We should never be deploying law enforcement to the home of someone battling mental illness and who's distressed. We should be deploying mental health clinicians. So this is the sort of work that I spearheaded and led when I was on the Boston City Council. Now that I'm addressing on the federal level at the macro level. So I introduced the People's Justice Guarantee. I introduced my bill to end qualified immunity. I've introduced my bill to end the push out crisis, the criminalization of black girls in our schools, uh, growing the school to confinement pathway simply for the way that black girls show up in the world, how our bodies are shaped, how our hair grows out of our head. Um, I've introduced the Counseling Not Criminalization Act, again, to make those investments in the socio-emotional wellness supports that are proven uh, to support our young people. At the end of the day, Crystal, we're grateful for allyship uh, in the form of hashtags and, and, and likes and maybe someone wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt that they didn't even likely buy from a black vendor. But at the end of the day, the only receipts that matter in this moment are budgets and policies. And do we have the political will and the courage to codify the value of black law lives in our budgets and in our policies? And it's gonna take more than one bill because I got a lot of colleagues that I think, think we'll be one and done with one bill. We are not going to undo centuries of hurt and harm and trauma with any one bill. It's gonna require systemic change, which requires multiple law change. I do wanna ask, cause I know, I know our time is short with you today, cause you, you're doing the work out here, especially on Capitol Hill. As we talk about law change, as we talk about legislation, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act of 2021, what needs to happen to get it to get it passed um, and other law enforcement, police reform legislation? Because there has been some significant opposition to Republicans, and that's making it a heavy lift in the Senate right now. Well, I mean, I have colleagues for whom my very existence is the resistance. You know, we have colleagues across the aisle and that filibuster, which which must be abolished which have been an obstructionist to our even passing anti-lynching legislation. Do you understand that? That we still don't even have an anti-lynching law on the books. So these folks have been obstructionist to restoring our voting rights. They have been obstructionist to passing an anti-lynching uh, bill. So of course they are obstructionist to any systemic progress we seek to make to address police brutality and to dismantle mass incarceration. None of that is shocking. What I'm focused on right now is pushing my colleagues and our caucus to again, uh, be multi-pronged and disciplinary in our approach to combat white supremacy, to root out systemic and structural racism, and to replace, replace systems of oppression with systems of liberation, and to replace systems of trauma and hurt with systems of healing. And maybe people think a legislator shouldn't talk like that, but guess what? 
we have legislated hurt and harm for centuries. So if we can legislate hurt and harm, then we can legislate equity, then we can equity, then we can legislate justice, then we can legislate healing. And we must. As I've mentioned to you previously, I look often to Reverend Barber, who is an incredible moral compass, who heads up the Poor People's Campaign. He says, we're in a moment of reckoning on racial injustice, but that reckoning demands of us a reconstruction, a third reconstruction. What is a reckoning? I grew up in the church. It's something epic, quite literally of biblical proportion. So if that is truly the moment that we are in right now is a reckoning, then our response must be commiserate to that reckoning. And that is about multiple pieces of legislation. And so you ask, what are the barriers? Um, it is those who seek to center the humanity and the dignity of Black Americans who have been complicit in the systematic marginalization and oppression of us for centuries. If you're not being actively anti-racist, then you are being complicit in those systems. So this is the moment for reconstruction. And I do believe that this administration, the Biden-Harris administration, has a decisive mandate from the people to move boldly on these sorts of systemic changes. When I take them at their word, when they say they wanna build back better, that they wanna bring a lens of racial justice and equity to every issue, they're speaking my language, which is policy. Because if policy is done the hurt, policy is my love language. This is now, how we root out these systemic injustices and disparities across every outcome, right? That means we have to do everything from pass my baby bonds bill to cancel student debt, to uh, passing rep a reparations bill, to DC statehood, to all the other bills that I've already enumerated. So there's no shortage of solutions. What there's a shortage of and a deficit of is the political will and the courage. And so that's why to um, uh, the young queen who spoke earlier, uh, who's an incredible uh, soldier on the front lines of this movement, shout out to our young people. She said, the power is in the hands of the people. That's right. That's what my mother taught me as an organizer. The power of the people has always been greater than the people in power. You have on here people whom I respect tremendously. Monica Cannon Grant, front lines of this has never waned. The reason why there's a national conversation about police brutality, mass incarceration, a national conversation about ending qualified immunity is because of the strength of the movement and because of unapologetically black legislators like Russell Holmes. And I'm sorry, I missed the name of your other guest that's joining us, but send love their way too. <laughs> Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, thank you so much for taking the time with us. We're going to bring bring in our panel of folks after, but I, I want to thank you so much for all the work you've been doing in the community because I know certainly certainly folks appreciate it as well. We appreciate you, Crystal. And lastly, I'll just say that I seek to do the work of Black liberation every day, but I can't do that if we're not alive. I want us all to get free, but we have to stay alive. And that means that we need a culture and policies that do not criminalize us simply for being black and being alive. Thank you, everyone. All right, I'm gonna bring in some other, our, our other voices here, adding them to the stream. Unmute yourself for me. 
Here with us uh, today is Soraya Wintersmith of WGBH. Uh, she's a reporter here uh, in Boston, and she has been covering uh, the police accountability issue with the Boston Police Department for uh, certainly a, a number of times uh, uh, for the last several weeks. Um, the Patrick Rose case, police department and city leaders, how they're handling that, and of course, uh, this officer, Patrick Rose, uh, is a former police officer and union head and is now facing dozens of child assault, um, sexual assault charges. And Monica Cannon-Grant, I mean, I feel like she needs no introduction at this point, but Monica Cannon-Grant, <laughs> she's been out here working from the beginning. Um, she is the founder of Violence in Boston and has really been in the community trying to make sure that as Congresswoman Presley says, that we stay alive. And I want to welcome you all to the show. Thank Thanks you for, for ha having us. Well, Monica, I want to start with you here. Um, talk to me about where you were when you heard the verdict and what went through your mind, given all of the backbreaking work you have been doing through you know, personal struggle and struggle out in trying to I guess, win hearts and minds to some degree. I was in my car. I was actually leaving violence in Boston um, and I was listening to it on the live stream. And when the verdict came in, I screamed. I was like, finally, in that moment, you know, um, I have to piggyback on what Congresswoman Presley said. Um, it was accountability. It wasn't justice. But in that moment, it was like, Finally, there's some accountability for a police officer in my generation, and he wasn't able to walk away uh, with killing George Floyd with no repercussions. Um, and in that moment, just thinking that there were so many other families that didn't get that opportunity and kind of feeling sad. Um, and then maybe an hour later, finding out that Micaiah Bryant had been shot four times in the chest and thinking a couple of things ran through my mind police are pissed and they're sending a message. So now they're just intentionally killing us. Um, we can't enjoy a moment and exhale for 90 minutes before another black person is killed at the hands of police. But also we still have so much work to do. Ahmaud Arbery's family didn't get that. Breonna Taylor's family didn't get that. Burrell Ramsey's family didn't get that. Terrence Coleman's family didn't get that. And I just, it's so much work to do. Oftentimes as an activist and organizer, you feel exhausted. And not so much exhausted with your people, just exhausted at the fact that you have to keep saying, stop killing us, and someone is actually saying, but. You work with Eric Gardner's family, Andrew Curse's family. Did you connect with them after this verdict, and, and how were they feeling? Um, Eric Gardner's family I haven't spoke to. I did speak to uh, Andrew Curse. And the same way, she's still fighting. She's actually getting ready to speak at the UN, um, advocating for Andrew's life because the fight continues for these families. And I think not just their families, but so many of these families who haven't received justice. I think that um, the Rice family still hasn't received justice. Um, I think a lot of these families are thinking, now it's time to go back and reopen these cases and address the harm and, and what was done to their families because it was murder. And we watched it happen on camera and they still don't have justice. I have to ask, you know, this com this question of whether the verdict was justice or just accountability. And I wonder how, how you see it. 
it's definitely accountability. It's not justice. When you watch the video of George Floyd's daughter talk about how her father loved her and the nicknames he gave her and how she just wants to be able to make him proud. It's not justice. She's never going to be able to hug her dad and talk to him and have her have him walk her down the aisle of her wedding or any of those things. And I think that's the part that we miss through all of this is it, it's like being robbed. And what are the repercussions of that? So my perspective is it's accountability, but it's definitely not justice. We heard Carrie Mays at the the end of the open there. That was just, I spoke with her, you know, a couple of hours after the verdict and Carrie Mays from teen empowerment. But of course she, she works uh, in organizing and things like that. But she had said that this is a testament to what the people can do. The people's oh. power here. And, I absolutely um, and agree. I this wasn't elected officials. You know, if you follow this trajectory of racial reckoning that's happened over the last year or so, you see that, there's abs it's absolutely power to the people. Absolutely. And, and I, I think you organize a 50, I know you organize a 55,000 person March that was peaceful. Talk to me about the power of the people. So just so we're clear, initially there wasn't going to be any charges in the George Floyd case. The initial DA refused to actually bring forth charges. It wasn't until people began to hit the streets and protest and mobilize and apply pressure that something was actually done. Um, organizing 55,000 people, I wanted to debunk the notion that we couldn't protest and highlight what was happening to us, but there's a difference in protesting in your community versus protesting in downtown Boston, which is oftentimes really comfortable for people to attend. But I wanted to focus and keep the protests in, in, in between Dorchester and Roxbury because that's our community. We're not gonna let anybody destroy the black and brown businesses in that community. We're not going to um, have people come in and cause havoc, but also the security I hired were black men from the community. So for me, it highlights further how um, we don't need police. They, they've been failing us for a really long time. If you empower people, if you give them something to believe in and they understand what we're up against, that they will step up and, and do the things necessary to protect the community that they come from. And I thought that that was important at the time. Uh, fast forward, we just protested the other day after the verdict, and it was to highlight that there's still work to be done. I think both things can be possible. Oftentimes people see the protest but they don't see the day-to-day -day work that happens on a regular basis. So, you know, I get trolled often and I know you know it, where people are like, well, you protested George Floyd. What about the shootings that happens in communities of color? And I'm like, so I'm on the ground every day in communities of color, working with the survivor families from those incidents and trying to push the Boston Police Department and push elected officials away from dumping more money into the police department and giving it to those of us who are on the ground doing the work. But no, there's not five news cameras out there when I'm doing that. And so I think people need to understand the correlation between the two. It's like, we're watching what happened with the George Floyd case, but we're also doing the work on the ground to try to prevent those things from happening in the city of Boston. I want you to say more about the news camera piece, because certainly, I mean, you know, I know about yeah. when a camera shows up and when a reporter shows up. What role do you think the media has played as part of helping and or hindering hindering the work? 
I think one of my biggest frustrations is when the reporting is happening, they report these incidents and label these young people who are children as adults. I think that police departments across this country have this code they use called NHI, and it means no human involved. And because they don't see us as human, it's really easy to take a 14-year-old child, a 15-year-old child, and categorize them as a woman or a man or an adult to try to take away the, the, the humanity in that person and realize that the police departments across the country are actually killing children. Um, and that's been one of my biggest frustrations with the press. The other thing is, is something I touched on a few minutes ago, they show up to the march, they show up to talk to me when it's something groundbreaking, but the day-to-day -day work that gets done when we're out advocating and supporting the grandmother's family who was killed over on Only Street or the multiple shootings that have happened in Dorchester and Roxbury, it's not the same coverage. I believe you and maybe a couple other reporters that are of color are the only ones that actually show up on a regular basis when it's not about someone dying. Like you, you've covered the center and what we will provide to highlight for communities. That's important for people who may not be on social media, but watch the news. And those things need to continuously happen. Like what resources are out there? A lot of people just don't know. And the media plays a huge part in that, which makes it very contentious when press show up to crime scenes or to uh, candlelight visuals. Cause it's like, where are you guys when great things are happening? With like with, with Terrence uh, Clark, who just recently um, lost his life. This is a kid from Dorchester who beat the odds. He did the very thing that young people uh, are trying to do in the city of Boston, which is get out and tragically lost his life in a car accident. But we should be celebrating him alive. We should be protecting black women alive. We should be protecting black trans women alive. We should be protecting black men alive. It shouldn't be that you have to die in order to become a martyr and have someone advocate for your life. Soraya, I want you to, to jump in here. Uh, Soraya Wintersmith is, uh, you know, my, my sister in the work here uh, on WGBH. I want you to jump in and, and talk about, you know, so, to what role, you know, the media plays in, in, in the, the, the televising, the broadcasting of these particular instances. And, you know, we've talked about at the Boston Association of Black Journalists about how we can do that better. Absolutely. I think Monica is making excellent points about the frustration with how media decides to cover instances of uh, crime, especially here in the city of Boston. I'm relatively new, but I can't tell you how many times I have showed up to places where there's not a crime scene and people are like, why are you here? No one's ever here. We're surprised to see you here. What are you doing? Um, I think that one of the biggest things that hopefully will happen is that journalists will re-examine their relationship to police statements and, and police press releases when they come out. If you were to look at the original police account of George Floyd's murder, I think the headline said that a man died after a medical incident during a police interaction. That press release made no mention of any knee on George Floyd's neck. Uh, it said that officers were able to get the suspect in handcuffs and noted that he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Um, it also emphasized that no weapons were used in the case. I think I said on Twitter last week, looking at that and knowing what we know now, 
it's pretty ridiculous. It's accurate, right? All of the things are accurate, but it's not a full picture of what went down and what was shown in bystander accounts of uh, a video of what was happening. Um, and there were multiple journalists, older journalists who said, this is how we have done it for a long time for various reasons, right? Uh, institutions are resource strapped. Uh, they know that they're going to have spotty coverage at best of routine police incidents. Um, but I think this example is quite clear that if we're going to continue covering criminal incidents, then we have to do a better job of filling in the blanks um, when police make statements. We have to do a better job of thinking about who we're talking to. Um, uh, four accounts are sourcing. We have to do a better job of language and labeling and naming the people who get arrested and perhaps charges are dropped later. But here we've criminalized somebody because that's what showed up in the press release and we didn't ask any questions. And I do think that we have to do a better job of sustained coverage of community issues when it has nothing to do with crime. So all of what Monica is saying is valid. I'm glad you mentioned the 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 labeling i've actually encountered a young man who was labeled gang involved in the media which affected how the hospital applied treatment to him and they refused to give him and send him home with a nurse and a home health aide, even though he was shot seven times because he was labeled gang involved and they didn't want their staff to be in jeopardy of getting shot or stabbed and they sent him home with nothing and with the responsibility of changing his own wounds and so i'm glad you mentioned it because it's so important and i don't think people realize the repercussions of those labels in the media when they happen i think also these conversations are happening in newsrooms because of the monica's work because of folks who are on the ground saying as people who watch as people who who are your ratings base we want you to do better, to to be more thoughtful about your language, to do uh, you know interview diverse voices, and and I think that as fo as journalists we need to speak up, and it's something that I've made a point of. I know it's something that Soraya has also done, and, and and other journalists in Boston, and not just journalists of color, because I think that sometimes folks, you know, white folks or or other Latinx folks feel like they can't speak up because they're not black. But I think one thing is we're all in the work together and it's about equal representation and, and, and telling these stories to, I guess, the, to, to their maximum accuracy. And I think that being in these communities, no matter what ethnicity you are, is important. Mm -hmm. So I want, um, so Monica, I want to ask you, like, when, you, I mean, you often talk about allies and accomplices and, and, and things like that. You know, when, you, when other folks, other than black folks, are engaged in the work, how do you do that thoughtfully? And I know that you've probably been asked this many times before. <laughs> um, yeah, I have been. And I think it's important that entering, you understand that black folks don't need you to speak for them. We just need support to be able to amplify the message that we're trying to send. And I'll use uh, the whole March for Our Lives movement as an example. When what happened and there were a mass shooting, there were black kids who were a part of that, who didn't get the recognition that the David Hogs and, and all the other kids got. You have an uh, obligation 
to amplify what those black students and so many other black young people across this country have been yelling and marching for their lives for the longest time while being ignored. And so when I think about accomplices, I think allyship makes people be comfortable with hashtags and thoughts and prayers, which annoys my soul. I think when I think of an accomplice, I use this analogy a lot. If I'm yelling and screaming, saying Black Lives Matter, I'm the angry Black woman. But if I have a white woman standing next to me screaming, then it's like, oh my God, we have a problem in this country. It changes the narrative. I think that people don't realize how white people were a part of the civil rights movement uh, with the Martin Luther Kings and the Malcolm X's and the Rosa Parks, but also with the Asada Shakur's. Um, I did a lot of studying of the Black Panther movement and realizing that the reason why she was able to flee to Colombia is because white people bailed her out of jail in the middle of the night and helped her get her freedom um, from this country. And so there's, there's, there's importance there when it comes to accomplices. The way you can show up is through your volunteer efforts. The way you can show up is through your advocacy, using your platform. Maybe you feel uncomfortable coming outside. I think it's important not to dictate to people how to show up um, when it comes to protesting. Maybe it's making phone calls. Maybe it's donating. Uh, find a nonprofit, a black or brown nonprofit who's struggling, who didn't get the same funding as others during this pandemic and you donate, but you, what you can't do is not do anything. And I think that's the biggest piece for me. I think yes, show up to the protest, but don't only show up to the protest and then go home and eat and go, I marched with the Negroes today, all set, racism is gone. It's like, it's, that's not how it works. There's so much work that we have, uh, have to do and continue to do. Protesting is one piece. I also do a lot of advocacy around legislation qualified immunity. I am for a hundred percent. Like I can't wait for the mobilization and whatever Congresswoman Ayanna Presley needs us to do to mobilize, to push that piece of legislation, because that is the reason why police departments across this country feel comfortable killing us because there has been no repercussions for it. Um, and I think we need to get rid of it. I know Massachusetts made an attempt. It got watered down. The reason it got watered down is because elected refused to actually talk to those of us on the ground and kind of advocated for us because they assumed they knew what we wanted. And so all of those things are super important and accomplices have a part to play in that when it comes to going to the state house and applying pressure to those who can help push forth legislation. That's where we need you. Soraya, I want you to jump in to talk about the Patrick Rose case because I know that you've been covering that extensively. And what were some of the things that you think are particularly concerning, especially given the climate that we are in, but also that we passed this police reform bill. And then you're seeing as we get our first black mayor, this particular issue comes up uh, in, 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 in the, the zeitgeist as it were. So, so talk to me a little bit about this case first for folks who are not familiar with it. And what were some of the things that you know, you're really paying attention to here? Sure. So I think that one political implication here in Boston of the entire George Floyd murder slash Chauvin case is that there is renewed attention to how police do their job and renewed attention on police reform. Um, and here in Boston, that's meaning transparency uh, and that's meaning the sort of opaque internal affairs process uh, that's been functioning here for a very long time. And so uh, 
Patrick Rose Sr. is this officer who was on the force from the 1990s all the way up until he retired in 2018. Um, and within the last two weeks, it's come out that there was a 1995 child assault complaint against him that the Boston Police's own Internal Affairs Department investigated and substantiated. And despite that substantiated finding, uh, Rose was able to stay on the force. And after he retired, it was five other people who came forward um, with allegations of sexual assault while they were minors. Um, and so politically, um, and it's interesting because now is a year where we're seeing a mayor's race. All of the candidates have come out in favor of some aspect of reform. In the case of the woman who is functioning as our mayor now, acting mayor Kim Janey, she took the sort of unprecedented step of releasing a batch of documents related to Rose's internal affairs case. Um, and we saw from those documents that the police union, uh, which is very powerful here in Boston and contributes to the sort of opaqueness behind closed doors, the police union basically said, hey, to the then commissioner at the time, we're thinking about filing a grievance um, over uh, Mr. Rose, and we'd like you to provide us some documents to help us in our potential grievance. A lot of people interpreted uh, that document as a threat um, and concluded that uh, the police commissioner and the department kind of capitulated to the union uh, because they didn't have a witness testimony to bring Rose to accountability. Um, I think that because all of the mayoral candidates are saying what they're saying about transparency and reforming the police department. Um, we are going to see, I'm hopeful anyway, that we're going to see some changes in the way that the Boston Police Department deals with public officials and, and the public and people who are requesting information about how they do what they do. Monica Hoppin, are, are you are you hopeful that this opaqueness will become uh, more more clear? <laughs> um, oh, Crystal, Crystal, Crystal. No, I don't. I don't know. I don't know how to not tell the truth. I'm sorry. I, no, I think that it's really easy to give statements and 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 appease the moment. We watch so many elected officials instantly get woke when George Floyd got killed, like there wasn't black men and women dying prior to that across this country, but more importantly, in their own districts. Um, I've been extremely frustrated with this process. I think we also need to get beyond words. Um, of course, every person running for mayor right now is going to say the things that they know the community wants to hear. But one of those mayoral candidates has taken $42,100 from the police department as we speak. And it's like, so what is what are they paying you for? What, what have you agreed to? Um, and that's one of my biggest frustrations. I challenge individuals to push and dig a little harder beyond just, hey, we released these documents, now we know. What are the repercussions? I think we still don't know what Boston police officers went to the Capitol. We have yet to to hear back as to who that was. There's so many unanswered questions. And in the midst of all of this, there was a report released that black people are still 63% of the people pulled over by the Boston Police Department, even while they have decreased their amount of stops. 
um, in the city of Boston. So no, uh, quite honestly, I, I'm waiting on some action. Um, I've talked to a couple of people who are running for office who I think want to begin to apply pressure and want to create change. But I just feel like at this point, action is necessary. And I'm waiting to see on that. But do I believe that it's going to change how we do things in the city of Boston? No. I'm going to be honest. With this case with George Floyd and Derek Chauvin, you have to kind of think a little deeper and think, well, was he the sacrificial lamb so that they can get people to kind of relax? You know what I mean? And their thought process around uh, police departments, because I I'm fully aware that they understood that if something didn't happen in this case, what was going to happen on the ground, right? And so I, I don't believe anything happens by accident. And I don't want to be the conspiracy theorist, but you have to understand that the, the police department functions in the same way they access not to. Like, again, there is a code of silence um, and they protect their own, uh, especially in the case that we're talking about with this officer from Boston, 95, 1995, he was promoted at least three to four times, which means they, that was intentional and deliberate. And so it'll be interesting to see. I think we've been begging for transparency and accountability for a really long time. I recently spoke with Attorney General Mara Healy. I've spoken with um, mayoral candidate Campbell. I've spoken with a number of people um, who have done work in the public safety and continue to do work. And I tell them the same thing. Please don't get out and release statements um, without real action. The community is looking for transparency and accountability. And that's what we want. We want to know what's going on and we want those questions answered. When they can tell me who went to the Capitol and those officers actually face charges, then we can begin to have the discussion on, am I hopeful? I definitely don't think you're a conspiracy theorist for whatever it's worth. <laughs> Thank you. And I want you to go ahead and unmute yourself, um, uh, Representative Holmes, and, and, and speak to, because I know you were, you've been crucial in this fight for police accountability with the post bill that you filed in 2016, I believe. And then now and in this conversation around police reform and the police reform bill in Massachusetts. Um, you know, one thing I ask all of the folks who are on the on the line here is, do they feel like the Chauvin verdict is justice or accountability or both? And I want to ask you that. But I also want to know is, how does that translate into police reform in Massachusetts? So good morning. I apologize. I've been at church this morning, so a little bit delayed. But uh, thank you for having me. I, I wanted to hop right on to what Monica was saying, because I can tell you this week, I began my week really on Monday with a text to Rachel and to uh, the mayor to say, hey guys, I just saw three different incidents in the same night where we have one police officer or one police department immediately release a uh, video. The next police department said we will release it tomorrow. And then the next police department says, well, we need a judge to tell us when we can release the video. And so, my text to both the DA and to the mayor was, well, I can recall under uh, Evans and under Gross, we had this rule that, hey, they thought they were doing something great after the, after the humble shooting, which was, hey, we're going to call everyone because unfortunately a gentleman uh, topped the car, shot the officer immediately in the face, and then they released the video the next day. 
and said, hey, this is what we're doing because we want to try to calm down things. And then after we went through that whole conversation, my question to them at that time was, will this be the standard operating procedure that we move forward with every time? Don't, let's not do this just when you believe that the incident is going to be very convincing for why you needed to shoot this uh, gentleman that day on Humboldt Avenue. But I said to Gross, let this be how we move every single time. And so they came up with a solution that says, yes, moving forward, when there's a police involved shooting, we're going to call community folks, um, NAACP, Urban League, all of them, we're going to call them. Uh, and and uh, we're going to then show the videos, and then we're going to show that at Y. We just wanted to have this this first conversation, and that worked for a couple of years. And quite frankly, um, the DA at the time, Connolly, was very much against it. And then Rachel came in three years ago and was like, "Hey, this might jeopardize our our investigation." And let me just review how we're going to do it. And I just said to both of them, "Hey guys, I believe we should make sure that we have something in place now." Because if something goes down in Boston, we should not be doing this on the fly. It should be discussed with the community in advance. It should be because we tore down the old system. Literally, Gross and Evans were getting awards all across the country about, oh, how, look at what we're doing in Boston, how we're doing this different. Well, now we better figure out what the Boston process is. And then, sorry for the long intro, but then uh, do I think this is over? No, but I do think um, it is the beginning. I saw a stat that said, uh, Somewhere in the neighborhood of one in every two thousand murders have been solved, uh, and persons been convicted. So that just tells you how far we have to go. And thank you for having me again. Great being with you, Monica. I want you to to jump in here and and, and to to sort of speak to what um, you know Representative Holmes is saying. So I agree. There, there's no process. There hasn't been a process. I think that's one of the biggest pieces. It's like, if you're going to come up with a process, then that needs to be standard operating procedure going across the board. And like he said, they released the video in that particular situation when a police officer was involved. But every time a situation comes up, the procedure can't change, right? Because then that, that brings about a lack of trust, a continued lack of trust, I should say. And it also makes people question What's happening? Are you are you altering a video? Are you doing things that um, take away from the story? Are you withholding information? The other pieces. One of my biggest frustrations is is I think that the mayor and the DA, as well as elected officials, should press for who they call when these situations happen. One of my biggest frustrations is it's the same people. No slight, but the black ministers and the NAACP, and we get that those ain't the people that are on the ground, right? They as much as we would love for them to be on the ground, that's that hasn't been the case in a really long time. And so who are you calling to the table to be like, this happened and we want to make sure that you have the information? Because when you don't do that, you leave a lot of things to speculation. You can't leave out certain communities and certain populations of people and not have them. And no, I don't mean having Monica at every meeting because I don't want to be the Negro representative, but there are a population of activists from different communities that you can reach out to and call on and have them be a part of when these things happen to say, hey, we want to be transparency, transparent and letting you guys know what happened. And that doesn't happen. And it hasn't happened in a really long time in the city of Boston. Soraya, I want Sorry, you I'm to just trying to make sure I sound I fine. Does my sound okay? Because I was hearing I might not be sounding okay. Okay, thank you.
Representative Holmes, go ahead. No, I was just trying to make sure my sound was on. I know I jumped on and I didn't I didn't know that was sound okay. So I'll go back to you until you're ready for me. Apologize. You can you can go ahead and stay up. That's fine. Okay. So uh, on the post question that you had, um, I can just say we're going to implement posts and it's going to be totally implemented in most ways uh, uh, come July 1. Um, my big thing about posts is simply we must be able to hold posts accountable. And so this whole question about what I see is, you know, what I think about government, we are always trying to fix the plane while the, the plane is in air. Unlike what we can normally do with a plane, we normally put a plane on the ground and say, okay, let's fix this thing. You have too many people, of course, millions and millions of people, you know, we're coming from decades of abuse by police and black and brown people and this war on drugs and crime. At the same time, you see a whole movement happening that says, what does this look like? Whereas we look to reshape what police looks like. And so as we're trying to have this conversation of, hey, this is how police was working before. And now as we try to reshape it, I think post is very, very important. I think it's important. As I've said, you know, you've heard me say before, when someone pulls me over, I want to look you up by looking me up. And so to have it so that we can look the police officers up at the same time they look at me up, I can look at their badge and see what their history is. I think that's very, very important. And have folks that, uh, to my point, people on it who we trust. To have people who are people you know, Larry Ellison's on it, um, Tina Terry's on it. This is the people who are going to be helping to make sense around whether or not we're going to decertify officers and the like. People who you can make a phone call and say, hey, Tina, why did you make that move? Or Larry, how did that end up happening? Or, you know, of course, you have Larry Calderon, who I said to Larry into the union, if you truly do want to have it so that uh, bad officers are not part of your group, then you should be able to have a post commission that decertifies nine to zero that this person should be removed. They should never be able to practice again. And so uh, I know I'm coming into the conversation late, but post is peace officer standard and training. We will finally have it here in the Commonwealth where if someone does something inappropriate, such as lie in the sand, they automatically lose their right to be in the police officer. Things of that nature should be in place and that happens in July. So I think that's a good step, but we still have more work to do. Sorry, I see you, you unmuted yourself. Do anything to add here? I was just putting in the chat. I'm glad that uh, Rep. Holmes mentioned the police union because I'm, again, as a newcomer to Boston, always fascinated with their public tone when it <laughs> comes to uh, incidents <laughs> uh, of crime. Um, one other thing that I think is very interesting is just the silence of police organizations um, in light of the verdict that came down on Tuesday. I was also saying earlier, Monica, I don't think you're a conspiracy theorist, especially when it comes to the guilty verdicts calming the masses. I was at the YMCA on the morning of the 20th and had my headphones on and was on the rowing machine. And two gentlemen that walked beside me were like, if it's not one guilty verdict, it's a wrap. <laughs> and that was in Dorchester where I work out. So there was definitely about to be some stuff if there was not a guilty verdict. And I'm sure Rep. Holmes will tell you lots of electeds were breathing sighs of relief when those came down for multiple reasons. Um, but back to what we're seeing from police organizations, just as a journalist, I'm curious about the takeaways for individual officers in Boston and across New England and what these verdicts mean for them. Um, and then like larger organizationally, because we haven't seen 
any statements come out from any of the large law enforcement organizations, which is fascinating to me because immediately after um, George Floyd's death, we saw Ben and Jerry's uh, all sorts of corporate accounts, nonprofit accounts coming out in support of Black Lives or Black Lives Matter or saying that they're going to reexamine some aspect of how they function. I had a friend from my old job in Virginia call me and say, what does Aunt Jemima changing its label have to do with Black Lives Matter? Um, And so for all these different aspects of society, right, to be evaluating their relationship with Black people and people of color, and for us to not see any response from police organizations is, as a journalist, it's fascinating. Well, there were some that had a response, though. It was just not the response we was looking for. Um, we've seen some police organizations post on social media how um, they were in disagreement with the verdict. Some police uh, locations uh, flew their flags at half staff because of what ha- happened in the case. So. I I believe that those who are silent are just as complacent as the ones who spoke out and and made it known that they have a racist establishment. And I think your silence speaks volumes. Well, did you see the one where the gentleman put up, the police officer accidentally put up what they told him he had to move to a personal uh, post? Fall River. Yeah. And so how he all of a sudden said, basically what Monica was mentioning, I believe so. So the day after the uh, after, or the day of, I, when I kept saying to my wife, I kept saying, "I'm tired of hearing from black people. I know what we believe. I want to hear what the white people have to say. I want to hear what the police officers have to say because I can't. You know, I'm not going to sit here and suppose I would know what they want to say. Not that I was tired of hearing from Eric Dyson or Michael Eric Dyson. I was. It was just like you know, on every channel, I was hearing just from us, and I I've still yet to hear or get that opportunity. For, or I've seen people take uh, that opportunity. I don't know if folks saw the the thing that was put in George Floyd's swear about uh, that, that was seen by Fox News as very racist. Here's some rules for white people. Did you guys see that as well? I don't know if you guys had seen that about what they were saying. Hey, white people, when you show up, please show up and understand that you need to be hearers and not folks who are trying to direct this conversation. I think we just have to have a frank conversation because I got myself in a little bit of trouble, as you guys know, that's not unusual, where I had a constituent who is white uh, start to talk about defund in the meeting the other day. And I started to ask what I thought were basic questions because of the fact that um, I want to just make sure, as I said, as we're trying to fly the plane and fix at the same time, what does this actually look like? To Monica's point about, you know, uh, now all of a sudden Kim's budget is only $4 million reduced versus 40. I mean, when you're trying to manage and govern at the same time you're trying to make a movement sometimes these conversations are hard and i welcome them as one of the political one of the political people uh, uh but i'll take whatever other questions you have but i didn't know i was going to be on some of my on with some of my favorite people i mean golly i mean you made this real easy call for me i'll be sitting here talking like i'm talking to you guys in my living room in just a moment well, I do, you know, Rep Holmes, listen, that's the whole point of the show, right? Let's have this conversation and do it right. Um, uh, as we we have just a few minutes left, I want you all, one thing we like to leave people who are viewing and listening is a call to action, is a, you know, something that they can do in their community as part of that civic engagement piece. And And I would like each of you to sort of speak to what you would tell folks who are listening and watching this online 
they can do to affect change in this space and and support you all in your work and and really you know be the change i mean we talk about knowledge is power power is change that's one of the taglines of the show what's the call to action here and monica i want to i want to start with you so i think for me it's a number of different things i think that um, for accomplices or allies, however they would like to label themselves, is it's simply some of the things that Rep Holmes mentioned. When you're coming to a space, you're there to listen. Um, we don't need you to speak for us. We do really well speaking for ourselves. We we need the support. Um, the other piece is, is um, be mindful of the things that you say and the judgment that you take in certain situations. And I, and I use the Micaiah Bryant case where it's like she had a knife, but how many white folks who have been armed have been taken peacefully, taken to Burger King, given water uh, and treated like human beings. And so what we're actually watching is a cop kill a child and know that when you talk about that case, that is what we see, a black child being murdered by a police officer. Um, Dante Wright was killed while we were awaiting a verdict in the George Floyd case and recognizing that even in the midst of us screaming to the top of our lungs that Black Lives Matter, we're still being killed at the hands of police departments across this country. I think one of the things I would like to leave and say for the media is to stop asking us how we feel after the first Black anything. The fact that it's the first Black is the problem. Uh, the other piece to that is, is one black person is not going to dismantle years of systematic racism and white supremacy that have been built and entrenched on this country since the beginning of time. And so, you know, I often get the calls that go, hey, first black commissioner, first black DA, how do you feel? The same way I felt when the white folks was there. They're only going to be allowed to do what that position allows them to do. And the work of organizers and activists are still necessary. It is an and also, not an either or. And so as far as how can people plug in, um, my website, violenceinboston.com, there are black and brown organizations that you can donate to who need support, who need volunteers. Um, when these legislation pieces come through and we post them, we need phone calls to be made. When Congresswoman Ayanna Presley is advocating to get rid of qualified immunity, we got to mobilize to get rid of qualified immunity. I am one of those people who believe in defunding and abolishing the police department, but I'm also a realist, recognizing that it probably won't happen in my generation. So we have an obligation to push for any ounce of accountability for police departments across this country while we have breath in our bodies. And so when we call on you, there is an expectation for you to use your phone or write a letter or whatever to be able to mobilize communities and get it done. And the last thing is, is uh, all politics is local. For as much as we're having this conversation in regards to the George Floyd case, there are black and brown people dying in Dorchester, Roxbury and Mattapan on a regular basis in the city of Boston. Last night, there were eight separate shootings. There were about four people who were shot. Plug in, these people need resources. I often get the calls of trying to advocate for these survivor families and direct them to resources that we have in the community. I know one of the top resources is the Lewis D. Brown Peace Institute, but there are so many other people doing this work on the ground that we need to direct communities to. Find a way to plug in and support communities who are doing this work every day when the news cameras are not there. Um, and that's what I would leave you guys with. And thank you for having me. I can see I have less than 25 seconds here. So I'm going to just say I agree with all of that. Hold us all accountable. But the one thing that I think that we need to stay focused on right now as we're moving legislatively is around civil service reform. I've, I've talked inside 
that bill. It is how do we get more diversity amongst our fire, police, and EMS? Marty Walsh should not have been the 775th paid employee in this city, and almost all the people above him are police and fire. Those jobs need to also include people of color. You cannot have the diversity, the lack of diversity amongst those departments and still think we're gonna, that that is right. And I believe you don't get to that lack of diversity without intentionality. It is intentional. And we in the caucus are focusing on civil service reform. And that is one of the things that's happening right now. I will keep it short and just go back to my comments earlier about journalists and journalistic organizations just re-examining their relationships with police officers and police institutions. No, the relationship does not have to be an adversarial one. It can be respectful, but the job of questioning and filling in blanks and not simply regurgitating police statements without any sort of questions, that's, that's not a good practice. And for people, I would just say, if you support journalistic institutions that are doing the good work, fair coverage of crimes and police, then support those institutions. Excellent. And support our black reporters in the city of Boston, like Crystal and and I know I don't want to jack up your name. Is it Soraya? That's right. Look, I got it right. Because I'm going to be honest, anytime I'm doing something, those are the reporters that I call because there's a trust mechanism there. Megan Irons, over at the Globe, There, we only have a few. So when we talk about protecting black people, that includes them as well, because I can only imagine the amount of hell they receive on the other side for telling the truth and recognizing that as a form of protest. I just wanted to say that out loud. Well, we, we certainly, we appreciate you, Monica, and we appreciate all the folks who allow us to do our jobs every day. Monica Cannon-Grant is the founder of Violence in Boston. Representative Russell Holmes is here with us, and Soraya Winter-Smith from WGBH. Thank you all so much. And that's Common Narrative for this Sunday. Please tune in every Sunday at noon right here on spark fm online you can also follow us on social media common narrative media on facebook on twitter on youtube and also on your apple Podcasts and your spotify podcast so if you miss any part of this you can go back on there and listen to the podcast of the show i'm crystal haynes and remember knowledge is power and power is change we'll see you next